If you've got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 9. Now, I, only, I know I only touched on John chapter 8 and just looked at the first sort of 12 verses because throughout the rest of that chapter, there is so many sermons that could just be taken from that one chapter. But I don't want to spend so much time looking at one chapter. I want us to sort of look at these particular, I guess you could say, these, these particular references to the beauty of Jesus in each chapter, which is really exciting. Last week, when you look at John chapter 8, you see this, this wonderful balance of how Jesus deals with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and yet to meet the need of a sinful woman caught in adultery. And, and like I shared last week, how he, can, like he doesn't dismiss the, the argument that the Pharisees were bringing forward. She was caught in sin. And he doesn't dismiss, he doesn't say they're wrong. And at the same time, he doesn't condone her behavior. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that her sin was okay. The way he deals with them is, is absolutely amazing, a wonderful picture of grace and holiness, of, of mercy and, and of judgment. And it's just a brilliant picture of the beauty of Jesus there. And so today, as we carry on, we see how in the rest of that chapter, can I have my slides up when you have the opportunity, please? Today, we're looking at this particular encounter that Jesus has with a blind man in John chapter 9. And what's interesting is that there are stages set out in this chapter where chapter 7 was a whole bunch of little, uh, I guess you could say, little dialogues, little encounters with various people. Chapter 8 is very similar. This whole chapter is between Jesus, this blind man, and these religious leaders. And it's about this blind man's journey to enlightenment, this blind man's journey to, to illumination, to the reality of Jesus' beauty. And, and what I want us to do is that as we go through this, it's a very long chapter, and I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, but I am going to make references to it. So please have your Bible open, because I'm not going to have all the passages up there today that we're going to look at. But what's really neat is that there, it, it parallels our journey in coming to Jesus. I mean, everybody close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes, please. You close your eyes. Close your eyes, Ben. Don't, don't, don't cheat. Ben, ben Neo's just staring at me. Okay? But that, that's your spiritual state before Jesus. That's it. You may hear things, but you've got nowhere to look. You may identify things and recognize things, but you cannot see clearly as to who the person is and what the person is doing. I can you open your eyes now? Thank you very much for, for, for accommodating me there. And this is this blind man's journey because this blind man goes from this state of complete darkness to this, to this state of, of searching, of being affected by Jesus, of receiving various things within his own life, persecution and harassment, even denial from his own family. And then eventually encounters Jesus in his fullness. And this is the journey that Jesus has taken us on. And you might be at a particular stage. You might be the one with his eyes closed. You might be the one that's experiencing hardship. You might be the one that hear his voice, experienced his healing hand, and wondered, who is this man? Or you might be the one now that is experiencing the fullness of Jesus' beauty as you have come to know him and as how he has gotten to know you. Because John chapter 8 looks at this. Okay, We look at who Jesus is. This is the beauty of Jesus as he refers to himself in John chapter 8. After verse 11, when it finishes him, when he says to the woman, go and leave your life of sin. 
He refers to himself as the light of the world in verse 12. You see how he, he's also disputed regarding his identity from the Pharisees when they ask things like, uh, who are you? And they realize, oh, sorry, and, and what's made known is their lack of insight because as it says in verse 27, they did not understand everything Jesus said to them. They just couldn't grasp. They heard, their eyes are closed. They're spiritually blind. They hear, but they don't comprehend. And then Jesus presents these counter disputes and he puts forward to these religious leaders who make their big claim as being the sons of Abraham. He then disputes that identity as well in verses 34 through to 41 and 42 to 47. And the chapter closes out with this, which I think is wonderful. Jesus refers to himself in this way. I've just taken little passages, but this is what he says about himself. He says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father. I am not seeking glory for myself. I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's in verses 49 to 51. Then we, then we read, my father is the one who glorifies me. I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Which ends with this wonderful statement when Jesus says, very truly, I tell you before Abraham was born, I am. A statement referring to Exodus chapter 3 when God describes himself to Moses as being I am, that I am. It was a statement that they all understood because in the very next verse, after verse 58, we hear that they, they purpose in their heart to kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus. So before we come into this, which means we come into this chapter today, which revolves around the healing of this man blind from birth, and what it raises are these questions, these questions about the world's brokenness contrasted with Jesus' sovereignty. It contrasts spiritual blindness with the illumination that the Spirit of God brings because it starts off with this question that you've probably heard in your Christian life from your non-Christian friends. You have maybe even asked this question yourself of God as you have sought to journey with him and grow in your relationship with him. And it's, it, I mean, I was asked this just recently as well, and it's the same question that these disciples put forward to Jesus when they meet this blind man. So let's pray, and we'll look at the scriptures together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the beautiful person that he is that has called us out of darkness and brought us to light that has saved us from our sin, that has opened our eyes, that has renewed our very hearts, that has made us new creations. And I pray this morning that you will help us to connect with you. Whatever distractions are going on in our minds, whatever trials we might be experiencing, whatever personal ailments, I pray that you will help us to come to understand just a little bit, just a little bit, just how you work, just what you are doing, and how we as your people remain, will remain open to your guidance and to your leading and to your transforming. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, in the opening of this chapter, we are confronted with one of the most difficult themes that I think many Christians have to deal with today and get challenged with often. And that is the theme of human suffering. 
If God is good, why do people suffer? If God is good, why do natural disasters take place? If God is good, why do the good die young and the wicked seem to succeed? If God is good. I mean, think about it. why do people get sick? Why do people suffer debilitating diseases? Or in the case of the disciples here, we read in verses 1 and 2 this. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Who sinned? Whose fault is it? Why is he blind? That's an honest question. For us as people, we like to have some sort of answer. For us as people, we like to try and make sense of things that are just beyond our comprehension. And we try to figure things out. And this is what the disciples are doing here in in a world of checks and balances where a man sows what he reaps and we have justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This man who has been blind from birth raises the issue for the disciples of responsibility. Whose fault is it? Is it because these parents were just bad parents, bad people of God, that this is their punishment, that their son is born blind? Maybe it's the son in in the foreknowledge of God who sees into the future. Maybe the son is going to commit something horrendous and thus suffers a a sinful response to that professed act. That seems a bit unfair, doesn't it? But whose fault is it that he is blind now? Now, this comes from a mindset, an Old Testament mindset. Remember, we are still technically in the Old Testament. The New Covenant doesn't start under Jesus until Acts chapter 2 when the church is born. So at this particular point in time, they are still under the Old Covenant, hence an Old Testament mentality, an Old Testament way of thinking. They're accustomed to this idea that obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings cursing. Simple as that. It's simple as that. And what, the, the Israel, what Israel got to partake of in their blessing was a promised land, was prosperity, was success, was being known by God. In Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 to 28, we read this. I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God. The curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God. It is a basic thought that is reiterated all throughout the Old Testament. It's what, if you look at the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, when God gives the law in Exodus chapter 20, and it's reiterated in, in, in Deuteronomy 5, I believe, there's this whole idea of what's called a conditional covenant. If you do this, then this will happen. If you obey, then I will bless If you do right, live righteously, then you will receive. Are you all with me at the moment? That's basically what happened in in the Old Testament. Even the people, when they were sitting there, when they say to Moses, whatever the Lord says, we will do. Whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. And and they're all all gung-ho. And then when Moses receives the law 
from God and the mount, what's happening down the bottom? They're worshiping a golden calf. Even before, they say, oh, whatever God says, we'll do it. And straight away, they go off and do their own thing. Reflective of our hearts. We talk a big game, don't we? We like talking a big game. And then when it comes time to deliver, we sort of fall short. But this basic thought is reiterated all throughout Scripture. I really like this when you look at Job. I've only put references up there, okay? So it, it refers to, now just to let you sort of remind you, okay? Talking to Israel as they go into the promised land, talking to Israel, there's addressing them as a nation, but this mentality is reflected when Job loses everything that he has. Now, we are given this insight into the backdrop, the spiritual machinations of what's taking place in Job chapter 1, aren't we? How, how the devil enters and, and talks with God, and they, what, have you considered my servant Job? And then Job ends up losing his family, losing his wealth, losing even his health. He doesn't lose his life, or his wife for that matter. But he, he, he's lost all of these things, and so what do his friends do? His righteous, like Eliphaz, this is what it says. Who being innocent, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. That mentality. You do wrong, you're going to suffer for it. Had he done anything wrong? No. There's more to it. We don't see it. But that whole idea of he's suffering, he must have done something wrong. Then you've got the other guy, Bildad. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Once again, they look, they see him going through stuff, and say, you must have done something wrong to suffer this way. In Job, uh, Job 11, Zophar, if you put away your sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. It's just this whole idea of, how view, and, and we do this now. We do this now. I'm guilty of this, and I've been accused of this. That there must be something going on for me. Now, please, don't mix up suffering consequences for your sin and going through trial. Don't mix that up. All right? Don't mix that up. You, you get involved with things that are ungodly and unrighteous, things that are unbiblical, and you suffer for it? Well, that's on you. You can't sit there and say, oh, yeah, yeah well, Lord, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm being blessed or whatever. That, no, no. Don't use that to justify some stupid choices you make, okay? There is definitely consequences to sin, and the question raised by the disciples was because they're trying to understand the condition of this blind man. There are consequences to sin, but you receive forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But if we as a Christian do things that are contrary to God's word, like I said, then we'll suffer the consequences to it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Thus, in the case, like all of us, there is an attempt to make sense of the man's blindness. And we try to reduce it to a consequence of disobedience, but it ignores a couple of facts. And it ignores the facts that sometimes, sometimes, things in the world that go bad, things that we suffer, are the results of a fallen world. We live in a broken world. Everything sort of, when, when Adam sinned and sin entered the world, things became tainted. And when they became tainted, tainted, then it ends up things break down. 
One person put it this way. In our fallen, sinful world, bad things happen for no reason that is apparent to us. Sometimes they occur simply because we live in a sin-sick world. Simple as that. This is what makes Jesus' answer so important. It doesn't give us a complete answer, but it does help us put things in context. In verse 3, Jesus says this. He starts with this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Neither this man nor his parents. The first thing established is that blame isn't ascribed. He doesn't ascribe blame to the parents, neither does he ascribe blame to the blind man. Okay, This is no one's fault. This is no one's consequence or penalty. This is the result of living in that broken, sin-sick world. And it results in sinful results, whether illness, disease, whether natural disasters, maybe some, some deformities. When sin entered the world through disobedience, the effect of sin is experienced by all. But despite sin's presence, despite the brokenness and fallenness of this world, we read how Jesus works himself into it. It says this in verse 3, But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The parents didn't sin. The blind man didn't sin. These things came about so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I just want to make a point here. Jesus didn't create or cast blindness upon the man so that he could heal him to prove a point. No, rather the blindness that came upon the man, Jesus was able to use to reveal the glory of God in him. Because he's not governed by a physical circumstance. He's not governed or controlled by a, a, a person's illness or a person's sickness or a person's situation. He's not governed by those things. He governs those things. He deals with those things. That's why he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is done through what he then says and does in the restoration of his sight. Read with me, carrying on from, from verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the blind man. Throughout his life, he may have been questioning why. Why was I born blind? What did my parents do that I was created in such a way? He's begging on the side of the road. What happened for me to experience this ailment? Now think about hearing, maybe for the first time, that your blindness is not the result of your sin or your parents' sin. Imagine hearing, probably for the first time, that it was nobody's fault and that he was just the recipient, I guess you could say he was not, not so much hard done by, he was the recipient of a broken, fallen world. See, he still doesn't know that this is Jesus. 
But maybe for the first time when the disciples say, a rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? He's probably perked his ears up and he's thinking, well, I've, you know, I've, I've, asked, I've asked that and wondered that question so many times. Who, whose fault is it? And then to fear no one's. Imagine what he would have felt then. There's no, it's nobody's fault. And then to hear, wait, I'm in darkness and this guy is calling himself the light of the world. Now, think about this. What's going through his mind when he hears this guy spit on the ground? What's going through his mind when this guy who spat on the ground is now mixing up in the ground a little bit of mud, and then you don't know, and, and I know this has happened, like when somebody touches you and you don't see when they touch you, and you, Whoa, and you sort of freak out. Imagine what happened when a guy with mud on his hands comes up, you're blind, and he puts mud on your eyes. What's going through your mind? You're probably thinking, what's going on? What's he doing? Why are you chucking mud on my face? Is that mud? I mean, I don't know. There has to be a whole bunch of things. And then to receive instruction. To go and and go to Siloam and then wash in this pool. Imagine all of the things. There are so many things in this one act that would have to stir you up. Because this guy who's probably desperate, this guy who is, and I know this is my buzzword that's been going on for like the past year, this guy who's in this position of need, of great need, accepts it. He heeds the instruction, and then he responds to that instruction. You know what that word is called? Faith. That word is called faith. Faith in what Jesus has done to him Faith in the instruction Jesus gives him, and that faith is demonstrated when he gets up and is taken to the pool of Siloam to wash. And you know what happens? That faith is rewarded when he receives his sight. You can believe anything as much as you like. You can believe and have all the knowledge in the world and believe it as hard as you like. But if you don't step out and do something about it, your faith is nothing. That's as simple as that. What's the whole James thing, you know, about faith? You, have, you, you say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. This blind man showed his faith by his works, by not only believing, but by faith, responding and following. And here's a really key word, obeying the word of God spoken into his life. And it is in the obedience of that word, he receives healing. He is rewarded. Okay, he chose to do it in this way, because like, did Jesus need to spit in the mud and put mud on his eyes to heal him? No. Did, did, Jesus, did Jesus need to, to sit there and direct him to Siloam to go and wash off? No. Is Jesus more powerful than just to speak into it? Yeah. One person put it this way, that he put mud on his eyes to direct people's eyes to him, to realize, hey, what's, what's he got? Eye? What? Is that the blind man with mud in his eyes? Just to recognize what's going on. But that's the reason why he did it. He wanted everybody to realize this is, this is a blind man who is going to experience through obedience to the work and the word of Jesus, receive a complete restoring of what he lacked. Okay? So, they did not believe that he had been... Again, here's the thing. 
he chose to do this, but whenever you respond to the word of God, you're going to have, or even not only respond to the word of God, if you're going to obey the word of God, you will have opposition. Because this is what happens here. As you read through the, through the chapter, it resulted in doubt because there were still some people that did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so what did they do? They go and get the man's parents. They go and get the man's parents. What happens when he gets to the parents? Then he suffers rejection. In verse, eight, uh, in verse 20, it says, We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but he is our son. But how can he see now, or who opens his eyes? We don't know. And I like this. This is where the rejection comes in. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this. Why? In verse 22, because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They were scared of the Jewish leaders. So what do they do to save their, to save their own skins in the synagogue? They threw their own son under a bus. He's of age. You ask him. We don't know how. So he experiences rejection. Then he experiences persecution. Okay, uh, We read from verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Here's this great verse. He replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. One thing I do know, is that my life has been changed. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And he's, he, he's already been captured. His heart's been captured by Jesus because what has been done to him, the healing that has been brought upon him. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And, and what I love, look, well, I'll read verse 30 in a minute. As Christians... We think we need to know everything in order to dialogue and discuss the gospel with people. What did this man know? Nothing. He didn't even know it was Jesus that he was with. All he knew was that his life had been changed. All he knew is that he could now see where he was once blind. And all he does is speak about the reality of what Jesus has done in his life, which is all we need to do. You know what that's called? It's called being a witness. Because a witness testifies to what has happened to them. A witness testifies of what they have seen, what they have heard, and what they have experienced. And that's all this guy is doing. Because what does he say in verse 30? The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. That's all he says. That's all he says. He just, he puts two and two together. Well, okay, we know God doesn't listen to sinners, and yet God listened to this guy who healed my eyes. So I don't know what's going on here, but one of you's are wrong. One of you's are wrong, and I'm going to place my bet that it's not the guy that healed me. And so he makes the stand, and you read in the verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
They kick him out of the synagogue. You know what happens when you make a stand for Jesus? Well, it says in, the, in 1 Corinthians, those who profess themselves to be wise become fools. That's what these, these Pharisees are doing now. They're becoming fools as through the simplicity and through the weakness, through, through, the, through the, the baseness of this blind man who just speaks the truth of what's happened, gets persecuted for it. This is the reality of life if you are going to follow Jesus. All because he experienced Jesus, his mercy, his love, his grace, and his healing power. And in the midst of his rejection, in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of this loneliness and being kicked out of the synagogue, the man who was blind now sees and gets to encounter the fullness of Jesus as the Lord Jesus reveals himself to him and meets him. Uh, this phrase has been going on the last few weeks. And meets him where he is at. He meets him where he is at. Because when you look towards the end of the chapter, you see how Jesus encounters this man now who's outside of the synagogue from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Now, each of us, each of us have experienced Jesus in, 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 in adjacent to this blind man's encounter with Jesus. We have all began at a point of spiritual blindness when you closed your eyes. We've all began there. And we've all heard about this person called Christ as we've grown up. We all, we all know to a certain extent. And, and I mean, look, we, we might even be there now. But we hear the truth of God's word. We, we, we read about the impact of his sacrifice. But it doesn't go beyond what you hear up here. It doesn't go beyond the intellectual ascent. We hear about Jesus, but nothing translates or impacts the rest of our lives. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want you to. We, we know that he comes down as a, as a raven to pluck out the word of God from your heart, that, land, that lands. Because he doesn't want to bring forth fruit. And you look at this. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says how the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You may have heard about Jesus, but you don't know him. You may know the stories of the Bible, but you don't know him. You might even come to church faithfully every week, but you don't know him. You know about him, you know about the work of Christ. You know about the sacrifice on the cross, but you don't know him. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded you from seeing that. Because he doesn't want you to know him. We also told this, and we also, we also willfully blind ourselves through deliberate ignorance. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 18, it says, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. If you ever read The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, there is a wonderful point where the, uh, there's a, Uncle Andrew is the guy's name. And he does some things where he hears Aslan talking, he hears animals talking, but he convinces himself, he convinces himself that he's not hearing them talk, he's just hearing roars or barks or, 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 or neighs. And he chooses not to hear the voices that are being spoken by these animals because to him it didn't make sense. He made, he made himself willfully ignorant. And it was really interesting because the way C.S. Lewis writes it, he says, Oh, son of Adam, 
what you do to protect yourself from the truth that stands right before you. And we force ourselves not to believe. So you might not believe what is there in front of us. So you might be in that part, that part of, of spiritual blindness. Now, we already know the state of our, according to, our state according to the Word of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Okay, and we are in need of quickening. Now, a dead man cannot revive themselves. Someone else must bring them to life. Someone else with the paddles, and then they'll boom. Someone else has to be outside because a dead man cannot do anything. Then that's the reason why Jesus comes, because God, who is rich in mercy and has great love wherewith he loves us, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And it's manifest in Jesus, who in the shedding of his blood and in the sacrifice of the cross, he made, he made spiritual mud to open your eyes. He, he made spiritual mud and, 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 and in order to be cleansed by his blood, to be made new, restored to wholeness, so we can see our Father's world, that we can see the beauty of his hand can see his hand at work and is moving in my life and the directing of my steps, regardless of what I face. Because like the blind man, after encountering, encountering Jesus, opposition arises. After encountering, encountering Jesus, isolation can occur. And encountering Jesus, rejection can take place. All because your testimony now is, well, where once I was blind, now I can see. I can see this is my father's world, and through my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. That, that, that my eyes can now see his hand coming down to support and uplift me when I'm down. That I can see his hand of, of, of correction when I'm walking my own way as he seeks to discipline me. But this is where, for us, Having things like the Word of God, having the people of God, having, having people pray for you, having the fellowship of the saints, all of this to meet our need as we encounter Jesus time after time after time because this is the ultimate goal of the Christian is to be like Jesus as Jesus lives his life through us, as it says in Galatians 2.20, but the life he lives in me, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself, gave himself for me. Walking as Jesus walked, as we abide in him, as we love God and as we love others, as we dwell in his parents. You see, the goal takes shape when we come to appreciate the transforming, regenerating, eye-opening, all-accepting love of Jesus. And that one is never content with cheap substitutes. That we won't find it anywhere else. So when our search has ended, when our darkness has been illuminated, when, when our eyes are opened to Jesus, we would join with the blind man who now sees in John chapter 9, verses 36 to 38, that when we sit there and say, who is he, sir? Because Jesus reveals himself and he talks with him and he goes, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, that's the point that Jesus wants to bring us to. He wants to bring us to him so that we might worship him in spirit 
and in truth. Open our eyes to see the greatness of who he is so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Open our eyes to see the sacrifice given to us on the cross so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Open our eyes to see the beauty of his love in each of you so that we might worship him as a body in spirit and in truth so that we might just fall more in love with him who loved us and gave himself for us so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. That's, that's the goal. That's the goal. To know him and to be known by him. That's why we're here. And then in that, in that, it overflows, it overflows to invite others to partake of it as well. To invite others to see the beauty of Jesus in your life, the reality of Jesus in your life. That when as you worship in spirit and the truth, people are drawn, not to you, people are drawn to Jesus and what he has done for you. That's, I, I don't know where you are on this blind man's journey, but I pray that each one of us end up here, that we might worship him because we see him for who he is. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this blind man's journey. And, and I pray that wherever we are in this journey, that you will help us and move us on to have our eyes opened so that we, with this blind man, join him in, in worship to say that we believe and to worship you in spirit and in truth. There are so many of us, Lord, that are caught up with things in the world, things that, as we even sang today, when the, when the mountain gets in our way, we will still praise because you are far greater than any mountain that we encounter. You are far more glorious than any trial that we face. You have reached out to us and drawn us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that in his name, we'll experience the beauty of, of abundance that is found in him also. I pray you will help us to look beyond our spiritual blindness, to help us, well, open our eyes beyond the spiritual blindness, that you'll help us to look beyond the persecution that we encounter, beyond the rejection that we might face, beyond all of the difficulties that, that will come across our paths, that we will see you in all your glory and in all your goodness. I pray you will help us, Father. Thank you that while we were blind, we can now see because of what your Son has done for us. And I pray that we will grow in our relationship with you as you continue to lead us, as you continue to guide us, as you continue to reveal yourself to us. Please give us hearts of worship. Please give us hearts of dependence. Please give us hearts of faith as we seek after you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. And all God's people said.